0: chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2 this morning, if you want to turn there, I'm going to go through virtually all the entire chapter here, and I'm going to do it a little bit differently this time, you notice you don't have any outlines, that's purposeful. Uh, I have just have two simple points, two main points. I'm going to give you the story, and then I'm going to give you those two points at the end of the message. So if you want to write them down, be prepared at the end uh, to write those two simple lessons down that we're going to learn uh, from this story in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> Someone today in this congregation is suffering. Is suffering maybe physically but maybe even mentally and emotionally this morning to the point that it keeps them awake at night. Maybe they brought some of that struggle with them here this morning. Someone here is dealing with sin in their lives, a sinful habit, something like that, that they just can't seem to break free of. Someone here this morning is having relationship struggles, whether uh, marital struggles, family struggles, uh, disagreements with friends and, 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 and distant relatives that just don't seem to be solved. Now, some of you here this morning, you may not indicate it, but some of you this morning are thinking, hey, he's talking about me. Right? What's, he, what's he doing getting up in the pulpit and talking about the problems in my life? Now, what was I doing there? Was I, uh, was I, was there, was there a word of knowledge that was given to me from the Lord? Was I prophesying? Did I have some kind of secret information? Well, actually, no, I didn't. Uh, What I did there was I was using examples uh, of painful problems that are so common in our sinful world today, in our sin-cursed world today. They are so common that I could expect them to be uh, common in in a group this size. I can expect all of those things, unfortunately, to be present in a group this size. And I know those things are going on. I'm certain of that. And in the line of work I'm in, and that's uh, pastoring, I have to keep that in the back of my mind, really, uh, that people are struggling with those things so I can be ready to help them in their time of struggle. Uh, in the, I can help them with these types of problems. But I could also employ uh, that knowledge to the wrong ends, couldn't I? I mean, the televangelists do that, don't they? I mean, they could use that kind of knowledge or information to kind of play an audience. Now, some of you are old enough to remember Jim Baker, uh, the old televangelist who ended up uh, going to prison for fraud. Uh, Jim Baker, Baker, after he fell from power, wrote a book called I Was Wrong. And he did some interviews, and he discussed how he used... That kind of methodology to trick people into believing that he was getting a message from God, that he was privy to, the, uh, to many people's problems and struggles. You know, somebody is having an ache, and somebody is having a pain, and, and people are saying, hey, that's me. You know, that he's talking about my struggle. The Lord has given him a word about me. And he was turning that knowledge into money and into power. I heard a pastor one time describing a series of similar situations during his childhood, uh, before he got saved, of course. Growing up, his mother uh, considered herself a bit of a spiritualist, and she would take him to these conferences uh, that were full of uh, a group made up of, you know, mediums and astrologers and psychics and palm readers and tarot card readers and all kinds of uh, every kind of occultist you can think of and they would do palm readings and they would do lectures and things like that and they were they were the modern day equivalent of the magicians and the sorcerers that we're going to read about here in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and he was always going and getting his palm read And they would would tell him things about them. They were always telling him things about his future. And he began to note certain things, certain patterns that were happening as they did these things uh, that that kind of uh, proved as evidence of the way these people worked. And one of the things he noticed was that whenever they would talk about his future, they would always tell him something he wanted to hear. They would always tell him, uh, something great was headed his way. He was going to be a great person. He was going to be someone important. He was going to be someone uh, of significance, someone deeply appealing. And really, that should tell you something, huh? And the thing was that they never really agreed on what his future would be. They'd all tell him a different story. And the funny thing was that they, not, not one of these psychics Not one of these palm readers ever told him that one day he would grow up to become a Baptist preacher and realize that everything they told him was a bunch of garbage. None of them, never. But that's the way these people make their living. They make their living telling people what they want to hear. Telling people things that appeal to their ears or working with with, with what they already know about someone and just kind of feeding it back to them. But even with all of that, their rate of success is actually quite low. You, you think of I, I, I get a news feed on my computer uh, every day, and there's always these stories about, I don't know, someone like Nostradamus who, who somehow predicted the, uh, the, the COVID em- epidemic or something that's happening in the world today. And uh, what, what a genius he was, what a prophet he was, because uh, in some strange way, depending on how you interpret the events, uh, in some vague way, they kind of uh, uh, reaffirmed one of his prophecies that he made long ago. What they didn 't realize was that uh, he made many, 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 and a lot of these so-called pro- uh, pro- prophets made many uh, predictions that never came true. I mean, most all of their predictions, ninety percent of them, probably never came true. But you know they just focus on that one uh, prediction, that one prophecy that actually did without regard to all the false assumptions that these prophets were giving. Well, nearly every Eastern leader in ancient days, in Bible times, nearly every king, nearly every emperor had a court full of this kind of person. The funny thing is, we like to think of ourselves as more enlightened today, don't we? Uh, We're so much more advanced than they are, they were, Uh, But the same is true of the courts of some of the important people in our day, some of the corporate leaders, politicians. You know what? Even it even happens in churches with church leaders. They have some of these people in their courts. What are they called? They're called yes men. Right? They did the guys who we gather around us to tell us what we want to hear, to build us up. To compliment us, to make us feel good, to make us feel important, to tell us that great things are ahead of us, to pump us up, and so on. Yes, men. You know, ancient Israel had them as well. They were called false prophets, and they uh, they always told the rulers and the people what they wanted to hear. Uh, But the Lord warned his people against those type of false prophets. He despised them because they were lying. And worse yet, not only were they lying, but they were lying in his name. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are full of condemnation of these men who were calling out, Peace, peace. Oh, everything's going to be great. Everything's fine. You're going to be okay. Everything's right. And they were living terribly sinful lives. Because even though those people were doing wickedly, the false prophets pretended to deliver messages of reassurance, uh, messages of comfort, saying, you know what? This is what the Lord is saying to you. And they give them something they want to hear. And the Lord says about this. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land, by sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. So he said, because they're doing this, and because you believe in them, I'm going to destroy them as long, uh, along with you. If you want to... Yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> now clearly, that kind of prophet is not the kind of prophet that tell rulers the hard things, the hard truths that they really, not that they want to hear, but truths that they need to hear. They're not those kind of prophets. But those kind of prophets that told them what they wanted to hear were the ones that were generally preferred. Those were the ones that were gathered around. And there's almost this amusing example of this in 2 Corinthians 18. If you want to turn there, that's okay. I'll just kind of repeat the story for you. Now, what's going on in 2 Corinthians 18 is there's this good king of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat has made a a terrible mistake because he's aligned himself with an evil, a wicked king of Israel named Ahab. And they're trying to determine whether, together whether they should attack a certain city. And all of Ahab's false prophets tell him, yeah, sure, go ahead. The Lord has spoken to us. The Lord's told us he's going to give you the victory. Go ahead and do it. And so Jehoshaphat asks a very good question. And Jehoshaphat asks, Um, i think it's the next slide is there not still a prophet of the lord here that we may inquire of him now it should have occurred probably before this it should have occurred uh, to jehoshaphat you know what i'm dealing with a guy whose place is so evil uh, that they don't even have a single prophet who can give us any kind of good information and Ahab says, well, there's still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And so they go and summon Micaiah. And the guy who summons Micaiah says to him, now look, all the other prophets have said great things, have said encouraging things, have said uh, you know, the Lord's going to give them great victory. Uh, you tell the king great things too. And that should tell us what they're all about right there. Just telling him good things, the good things, the smooth things, the things that are useful when you want to hear what you want to hear. But in these verses that we're going to study this morning, uh, something very different is going on. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. You probably know the story. He knows the dream is important. The dream has terrified him because he knows it's important. He senses that. He knows that this dream is not natural. It's not something, in other words, that's part of his maybe his partially digested dinner or something like that. Um, But he knows he's had insight uh, that this message is is a message that's come from God. And so he's worried about it, and he desperately wants to know what it means. And so we read in verses 1 through 4 of Daniel chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 2. Uh, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O oh, king, live forever! Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a heap, an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation." Now, Nebuchadnezzar is superstitious, but he's not stupid, right? He doesn't want, this time, to be appeased by his yes-men, to be appeased by his, to be placated by his magicians. He doesn't want to hear what they think he wants to hear. He doesn't want his ears to be tickled. This time, he wants the truth, because he thinks it's important. So even before they come to him, he's determined here that he's going to ask them not only for the meaning of the dream, but he's going to ask them what the dream is in the first place. He's going to ask them not only the meaning of the dream, but the dream itself. Now, trust me, uh, any person who gets that kind of information, can kind of weave something together in a plausible explanation of what the dream meant. Anybody can do that. And that's not what he wants. He doesn't just want to know the meaning of the dream, though. He wants to know the dream itself. So Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in his life, uh, now, he, he will eventually, uh, later on in the book, but at this point, he does not yet acknowledge that there is only one God in heaven. But he knows enough to know that this dream is a message for him, and he wants an interpretation from the same source as the message came from. And to encourage these magicians a little, just to encourage them a little, uh, to get it right, he tells them, either you tell me the dream, or I'm going to have you cut in pieces. And the implication is probably not quickly, probably going to do it slowly and painfully a little bit at a time. And then he says, I'll have your houses laid in ruins. And actually, the word for houses he uses here is the same word that Joshua uses when he says, as for me and my house, uh, we will serve the Lord. So maybe it's a reference not to the physical house, but to his uh, wife, his children, his relatives, people like that. In other words, I'm not only gonna cut you off from the face of the earth, I'm gonna cut all your generations that follow you off from the uh, the face of the earth, and so that you're not going to have any descendants. You're not going to have anybody to remember you. If you don't tell me this dream, if you don't get this right, I'm going to cut off you and your posterity from the land. You'll be gone entirely. But if you get it right, he says, you'll receive great honor and, and and a good promotion. And so it's the ultimate dangling of the carrot uh, in front of the noses of these magicians. Now, the magicians, after they hear the command of the king, aren't so cocky, right? They can't do what the king asks them to do. So they fall back on their traditional methodology, and they say a second time. They say, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation, In other words, they're saying, you know, look, king, you, 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 surely you understand how things are supposed to go here, how this goes. Uh, This is how the argument has worked for centuries, right? You tell us the dream, we give you the interpretation. That's the way it's supposed to go, king. That's the way it works. And that answer does not satisfy Nebuchadnezzar. So what does he think is happening? He thinks they're stalling for time, right? Because he says, uh, starting in verse 8, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, uh, there is but one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. He's saying, you know what? You guys just want more time so that you can come up with some kind of plausible answer here, some some kind of story for me. But I don't want a plausible story. He says, I want the truth. If you can't tell me the dream, it will prove to me that you are nothing but a bunch of charlatans uh, working around me for a meal ticket. And really, that's true, isn't it? They're hoping to appease him with comforting lies. And so what do they do? They finally speak the truth. And they say to him, starting in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, this is utterly beyond our ability, king. We can't do it. This is utterly beyond the scope of worldly wisdom, which is really all we work in. That's all we deal with. We don't have insight from above. Uh, We just have the gleanings of worldly wise men. So at this point, they know they can't do it because they accept that no mere man can really know the spirit of another man. But know this for yourselves. You probably do. You know this for yourself. I mean, you've encountered it whether you realize it or not. If you've been married for any length of time, oftentimes you can tell what your spouse is thinking without a word ever being said, can't you? Right? You, you, you look at their, uh, their body language or whatever. You know what they're going through. You know what they're thinking. Men, men. You know, sometimes we uh, that uh, when our when our wives say nothing, it really doesn't mean nothing, right? When they say fine, uh, it doesn't mean everything's fine, right? Don't go back to your remote. Don't just say okay, uh, I was just wondering, dear, and go back to it, right? Not if you know what's good for you. So what are you doing? You're reading their tone of voice. You're you're observing their, their body language, and you're knowing what's going through their mind, right? And, and your experience from the past tells you uh, all about what, uh, what probably your, your spouse is, um, is experiencing. But are you really reading their heart? No, right? You're reading their body language. You're reading the information that's coming out. But are you really feeling their soul? Are you really feeling their pain? No. In fact, no one can do that except God. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the sympathy of our God toward his people. When we as humans see someone in our congregation in pain, we feel bad for them, don't we? And we feel bad for them because they feel bad. But do we really feel the pain that they feel? No, we don't. We feel feel bad because we know they're feeling bad, but God knows exactly the pain that you're going through. He knows exactly because he dwells in you. He is the one who can really have sympathy for what you're going through because he is experiencing it firsthand as he dwells in you. Now, the magicians know that only God can do that kind of thing. He's the only one who can really know our dreams, our hopes, our desires. He's the only one who can know what's really going on inside of us. Better than we can. And Paul puts it this way. He says, "For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him?" Only a man knows his own uh, only a man in his own soul really knows what's going on in his his own heart. And really, there's one more, right? And that's God. God knows. So to cut through all the chaff uh, and get down to the heart of the problem here, what frustrates Nebuchadnezzar most of all, uh, what frustrates him so much is that he realizes at this point that there is no one in his kingdom who can know the dream except God And guess what? He's just discovered that none of his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers, none of uh, his greatest advisors in the kingdom know God. None of them have any kind of heavenly insight. They they don't really know God. None of them have access to any wisdom that's not generated here on earth. Human wisdom. Nobody has more than scrolls and, and booklets and trickery and con games and things like that. All of those things that men use. So the decree goes out to kill all of these so-called wise men. Verse 12 and 13. For this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Hmm. But God knows uh, what he's doing. And God has preserved a remnant in that kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, even in Babylon. He's preserved a remnant of at least four men, right? Daniel and his three friends. And you would know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, They have other names here in this passage. Uh, But as Daniel and his three friends, people who really do know the living God, People who really do communicate with God, and God communicates with them. There are people that God has in this kingdom that He's using. These men know the Lord. These men love the Lord. But it looks like even they now are in terrible danger. Because what have they been trained to be? They've been trained, they've been, they've been trained to be these wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, council, right? And the decree has gone out to kill all the wise men, even the, even the so-called junior wise men, which I guess is what they would be at this point. So what happens? Verses 14 through 16. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Ariok, uh, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. So we know now that God is behind all of this, right? He's, he's made Daniel, uh, he's made Daniel well thought of uh, by the men in the kingdom here who serve the king, including Arioch, and thus Daniel, the junior wise man, is able to arrange an interview with the king. And he's able to use his influence. And when he goes into the king, he doesn't say like the other wise men, right? Tell me the dream and I'll give you the interpretation. He doesn't say that, right? He says, give me some time and I'll tell you what your dream is. I'll tell you your dream. And so obviously the king is uh, intrigued and he gives Daniel that time he needs. He grants his request. And so what is Daniel going to do now? Now that he's made this promise to the king, give me some time and I'll tell you your dream. Is he going to go back and look through the dream books? Is he going to go and ask the king's friends? You know, what do you think the king dreamt last night? Right? Is, he, is he going to try tarot cards or casting lots or anything like that? Is he going to do any of that? No, that would be worldly wisdom. That would be an attempt to climb up uh, uh, by your own power into heaven. That would be useless, as useless as what the king's men already have done. Verses seventeen to nineteen. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies of uh, mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You know what? Daniel knew what Joseph knew. Remember Joseph? Joseph was able to interpret dreams. He interpreted the dreams of uh, Pharaoh's baker and his cupbearer and even Pharaoh himself. He gave those interpretations. And Daniel knew, knew what Joseph knew, that only God knows the hearts of men, and therefore he went to the source, and right? he went directly to God. Daniel went to God in prayer, and he spoke to him, and he knows that the only thing he can do in this situation is to pray. But here's an important point, one of the most important points we're going to make, and we'll kind of deal with this a little later also. Daniel is not going to pray alone. He's not going to pray alone. He gathers his friends to him, his three friends. And you know what? They pray together. He gathers his faithful friends, and they together beg the mercies of the Lord of heaven. In prayer. And the Lord, who's directing all these events now that are happening that we read about, he blesses those prayers and he gives Daniel a vision of what the king dreamt and he gives him the interpretation as well. And not only is Daniel, Daniel obvi- obviously blessed by the Lord in having the dream and its interpretation given to him, but the substance of the dream itself was a blessing to him. Think about what that dream meant. And if you you actually read further on down uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, you'll find out that this is a wonderful prophecy of God's coming kingdom. Actually, it's not very good news for Nebuchadnezzar or any worldly uh, king or empire, but it's good news for God's people. It's great news. And so that too was a great blessing for him, great news for him. And Daniel is blessed, and he replies with thanksgiving. We're not going to go through the, uh, the, the, the prayer or the thanksgiving that he made, but he acknowledges God's mercy, and he acknowledges God's sovereignty and his omniscience. And some of the great summary statements on the subject are contained in these words of Daniel. You know, God is the one who knows all things because God is the one who has ordained all things. God is higher than the kings. God is greater than the empires. God is greater than uh, man's wisdom. God is the one who gives insight into the problems of the world. And he praises and he blesses God because he knows this. And the reason he knows it is because God has given him that knowledge. And I'll leave it for you, Uh, we we know the result of that, at least most of us do, that uh, he goes to the king and he gives the king the dream and its interpretation, and Daniel and his three friends are not killed, but they are uh, exalted, they are promoted in the kingdom. And you can read more about that later. But I want to point out to you a couple of lessons for today uh, from this passage. Since you don't have an outline, you might break out a sheet of paper and write these down. The first one is this. first lesson we learn from this passage is the utter worthlessness of man's wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. The utter worthlessness of man's wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. We can see the emptiness of it. The foolishness of it. You know, we live in an age today That is still glutted with the spiritual. Absolutely glutted. Go into any bookstore uh, at the shopping center, and you'll see rows and rows and rows of books all on spiritism, spiritualism, and mysticism, and different things like that. Now, what is all of it? It's just worldly wisdom, right? It's just it's just man's wisdom. And ultimately, it's an exercise in vanity. It only serves one agenda, and that is the agenda of the enemies of your soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? It keeps you further from God. It keeps you further from the truth. It encourages you to believe that you can climb up to heaven in your own power. But you need to realize... Uh, In this life, what Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way when he realized, you know what, none of my magicians has any insight into the mind of God or even into the human uh, finite mind. And when you realize, uh, what you need to realize is that uh, if we're to know anything about God and if we're to know anything about his will, it can only happen as God reveals it to us. And not from any sort of secret insight. And I won't lie to you, you know, a a, a lot of worldly wisdom rests on this claim that men make to be privy to the word of God. Churches aren't immune to it, you know. The the, The supposed man of God says, I had a vision. Or the Lord spoke to me and this is what he said. And it's something that's not necessarily from the Bible. And that's what these modern-day prophets will tell us. But you know, their advice is ultimately the same kind of advice that just people just want to hear, tickling people's ears. It's inevitably ear-itching stuff, and that's why it sells. That's why people eat it up. It may sound good. I had a person in a, in a congregation I was in uh, oh, a few years back and she came to me, uh, hadn't, go, hadn't come to church, and she said, well, I've been watching uh, this televangelist, this preacher on television. Uh, I won't give you his name, but his initials are Joel Olstein." Um, and she says, you know what? I found out that I don't disagree with anything he says. And I said, okay, well, what he says may be biblical, but listen to this. Listen to what he doesn't say. Because he'll, you'll never hear him talk about repentance, or sin, or uh, uh, discipline, or, or, or any of the hard facts, the sinfulness of mankind. He only gives you what you want to hear. Right? Like the words of these false prophets of Israel, we have our own false prophets today who know what people want to hear, and they know they can make money off of it. They can know they can gain power from it. And it sells. That's why it takes up so much of the shelves on our bookstores today. I think of the popularity. uh, It's not so recent a book, but it's a fairly recent book called The Da Vinci Code, right? Now, if we'd written some kind of historical novel uh, that reinforced historic orthodoxy, that told the Christian story over again, do you think it would sell? <laughs> not, five, not 50 million copies worldwide, right? It wouldn't sell. But you, spent, you spread ridiculous rumors and, and blasphemies about Jesus Christ, and it sells like hotcakes. People want to hear that. As long as it goes with the wisdom of the world, and it does. That's why it sells. You go to the bookstore, and you look for the books on Orthodox Christianity in the sections about that small. It usually occupies a space about that big, if you can find it at all. Sometimes even in Christian bookstores, so-called Christian bookstores. But this shouldn't surprise us. What did Jesus tell us? Jesus said this, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there uh, and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life so it shouldn't surprise us that the section of the bookstore on authentic christianity is about that big it's pretty narrow as well in any event of all the books out there There is only one in which God reveals himself. There is only one in which God reveals his will and tells us how to be saved, and that is God's word. That is the Bible. And it should be a sure rule for our life and our practice, just as it was for Daniel. Now, they were trained and they were educated in the ways of the Chaldeans and the magicians and so on, but notice in a time of crisis, they didn't appeal to that, right? They they know the world, but they didn't use the world's methods. What did they do? Where do they go? They go immediately to God. They go immediately to his word, to the God of their fathers. They go back to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they beg his mercies. Because they know what is truth. That there is one God in heaven, and he has revealed himself through his word. Now, the, now, now false prophets are nothing new. Right? You'll find them even in the church. Paul warned us about false prophets in 2 Timothy 4.3. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine... But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside unto fables. And we need to know our own heart and know the fact that we have, each of us, that itching ear desire. You know what? I love it when people tell me things I want to hear. I love it when people compliment me and build up my ego. There's a carnal side of me that just wants to hear that stuff all the time. Especially when it's about me. Right? It, I don't want to hear the truth. Especially when it hurts. But if I can give some advice, it would be this. Go to people who do tell you the truth. Even if that truth hurts, go to people who tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear, right? When you're searching for a church, seek out a church that will teach you the truth, not preach these things that, uh, that appeal to your itching ears and, and, and tell you what you want to hear, don't seek churches who will contradict what God's word and approve you and your sins and tell you what you want to hear and lull you to sleep. Because those types of people are not the friends of your soul. Well, let's look at it this way. If you were suffering from a potentially fatal but curable disease, would you want to go to a man who's going to tell you you're fine? Just go on with your life, you know, give you some sort of placebo to make you feel better? Well, all the time this disease is killing you? Would you want to go to that doctor? Well, no, you'd probably sue him for malpractice, and you'd probably win. No, most people would would do that. They'd sue him. Well, just as there is malpractice of the body, there is malpractice of the soul. And I'll tell you this, as you grow in grace as a Christian, you will find that you love the truth more and more as you mature in your Christian life, as you become more like Him. You love the truth more and more, even when that truth hurts, even when that truth tells you things that you don't want to hear. Even the truth about yourself and your own situation You'll find you hate nothing as much as lies, even when they are very pleasant to you, even when you would like to believe them. Proverbs 27, verse 6 and 7, puts it beautifully when it says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. If we have souls that are hungry for the truth, words that tell us the truth about ourselves will be satisfying. Who's a better friend to you? Someone who comes to you and says, you know what, I love you too much to let you keep going down the road you're going. I need to to talk to you. I need to uh, help you to correct uh, the direction you're heading in. Or maybe someone that says, oh, you're fine. Just continue down that road to destruction. Who's the better friend? The faithful friend who tells you the hard things. Yes, it's difficult to tell a friend hard things. I know. Wouldn't you rather not do that? (laughs) Wouldn't you rather not tell people the truth? But you need to be that kind of friend as well to other people if you follow the Lord because he himself told us some things uh, about ourselves, but then he opened the way of salvation to us, the way of forgiveness. He told us the hard things, and then he offered us forgiveness for those hard things. Secondly, final point. Second thing you see here is I hope that you see the amazing power of prayer. The amazing power of prayer. A righteous man's prayers are an amazingly powerful thing because of God. By the means of prayer, our sovereign God can take something that is potentially disastrous and turn it into a tremendous blessing for us a tremendous victory, and use it for the good of his own people. you got a great example here. Think about it. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar had could have spelled the death of Daniel and all his friends. And yet, by means of faithful prayer, the Lord turned it into a method in which they are exalted and promoted and become important men in Babylon. And we'll see in this example the great, great value of having friends who are praying friends, friends who know the Lord, friends who can take your burdens and carry them to the throne of grace and and care for you and pray for you. Matthew Henry said this, Praying friends are valuable friends. It is good to have an intimacy and an interest in those who have fellowship with God and an interest at the throne of grace. And it well becomes the greatest and best of men to desire the assistance of, uh, uh, of the prayers of others for them. Find friends who will pray for you. Choose friends like Daniel's friend. Choose friends who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Who love Him. Choose friends who pray. Because those are the people who as we're going through life can help you the most. They are the ones who will lift you up before the throne of grace. They're the ones who help you. They will go to God on your behalf. But people who don't know the Lord, they can't do that. They may be fun to be with. But ultimately they'll end up being of no assistance to you. But then there are those people who maybe don't always tell you those things that are fun, yet they love you more because they'll pray for you, and they'll do good to your soul as a result. Let me close with this thought. If we served a God who was all-powerful but not merciful, It would do us absolutely no good. Did you know that? It would do us no good whatsoever even to pray. Now why is that? Because even if he could help us, and he can, he wouldn't do it if he wasn't merciful. But we don't serve that kind of God. We serve a God who is not only all-powerful, but all-merciful, who loves us, and who wants the best for us. We serve a God who is like that, who has shown us that, actually, by sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins so that by faith in Christ, we can be united to God again. We can be reconciled to him. We might be forgiven of sin. We might be able to call on him in our greatest need in prayer. It's all because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We might not only know that God and be able to communicate with that God, but we can ask that God for help in our lives. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can do that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, you'll only have access. You'll only have that kind of access if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I pray that every person in this auditorium, every person listening, knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Or maybe will know Him by the time the day's over. And I pray today that's the case with everyone here. Just remember there's nothing more powerful in life than prayer, probably nothing more neglected than prayer either. There's nothing in this world so powerful as prayer. Certainly not man's wisdom, which is ultimately foolishness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what it means to us. Thank you for being an all-powerful and merciful God. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you and on your word. Lord, the wisdom that's found, the instructions for our lives that are found in your word, not only to read it, but to heed it and to obey it, that our lives might be blessed because of it. Lord, you have the words of life, the only words of life. Lord, may we be uh, faithful to it, faithful in obeying it, that we might, be, uh, we might have life in ourselves. So Lord, uh, help us to choose friends also, to be uh, friends who are, who are people of prayer. Lord, help us ourselves to be friends who are praying friends, that we might bring burdens before the throne of grace, that we, we might be a help and an assistance to those uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who need our help. You know, sometimes we can help physically. Sometimes, Lord, only all we can do is pray. But, Lord, that's, uh, that's the greatest thing we can do. But, Lord, help us to choose friends who are praying friends. Help us to be a friend who is a praying friend. Lord, bless your word to our hearts even today. Help us to go out and apply it even this week. In Jesus' name, amen.